We've been talking about intercessory prayer, and in just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to give a report of your intercessory prayer work. But before you do that, I wanted to share a couple stories that have come my way. I'm I'm hearing little stories throughout the week of of people. uh, Some are saying, I'm praying, and things are happening. Some people are saying, I'm praying, and nothing is happening. And that's just the work of intercessory prayer. But I wanted to share a couple things with you today. The first story, uh, Allie, who was in the other service, said I could share this, but she said the first week, the challenge was ask God to put, some, put something or someone on your heart to pray for that week. And she said, I didn't do it. I didn't want to. I didn't want to pray for anybody. And I thought, way to go, Allie. Way to say what a lot of us actually think and feel, right? Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do the work of intercession because it's just hard work. But she said, on that day, I think it was the choir saying, there was that song that we did, The Blessing, and it was, uh, may your favor be on your children, on their children, on those generations. And she was was listening to that song, and she kind of felt this nudge from God of just to pay attention to that song. And she thought, well, that's weird. I don't have children. I don't plan to have children. How does this, why would this even come to mind? But she just kind of tucked that away and moved on. Later in the week, she was talking with a coworker, a coworker who in the past has said, hey, Allie, I know you're a Christian. Would you pray for me? This coworker came up to Allie and said, hey, I just want to let you know things aren't good in my family, and I'm just really praying that my family can stay together, and I, I don't know that we're going to be able to. And Allie said, of course I'll pray for you. So on her, way, on her drive home from, from work, she started praying for her coworker and realized she was praying for her children. And that phrase from that song came to mind, and she, she said, I had a really clear sense that God was using that song for this person that I was supposed to pray for. And so she said, God was preparing me to pray for her a week before she even told me about this prayer request. And she said, every time I pray for her now, I, I, I listen to that song, I play it twice on my drive on my way to work every morning, and I, I pray through that song for her, that the Lord's favor will be on them, that he will pull their family together, that he will bless their children and their children's children. She said, I'm praying this all the way through. Isn't that not beautiful? Just beautiful. We also had a fun story last week. Uh, Gary, are you here today? Uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, I'm just going to share this little fun thing. Uh, Gary sh- gives this testimony last week, and he says, I, you know, I'm trying to get my life back together with God. There's a whole story about that, and he said, I needed reading glasses to do it because I wanted to read my Bible, and I realized I'm trying to get back into my Bible. I can't read it because I can't see. If you were here last week, <laughs> some of you over 40 are saying amen, all right, because you, you get it. It's like weird. But last week, if you happen to notice, we have these free tables where from time to time random things show up. I don't know where they come from. This random stuff shows up and there are free giveaways that, that we do. Last Sunday, there was a whole pile of reading glasses on the free table out there. Never in my 18 years of time at City Life have I ever seen a donation of reading glasses. And here we have reading glasses on the free table on the, on the same day that Gary is praying that he will get a pair of reading glasses so he can read his Bible. Is that cool? It's coincidence? I don't think so. I think that's just how God does things. So there have been some fun stories like that. I've also heard some reports from people saying, hey, I am doing this work of intercessory prayer, and right now it is the hardest, biggest burden I have ever had, and I sure would love to see breakthrough, but I'm not seeing any yet. So I would just like to pause and give you an opportunity to share a report on where you are with your efforts toward growing in intercession. We have Andy and Dreezy, uh, we've got microphones that they're, they're going to be carrying around. This is, a time, this is boot camp. You've been in training. You've been challenged to do some practical things. This is an opportunity for you to report on some things that God is doing 
teaching you, how he's working in you, through you. Intercessory prayer, it is, it's a begging, it's a begging God. It's a pleading with God. We've defined intercessory prayer as begging God for other people. We've talked about a few different kinds of prayer in this series. We, we, maybe you, maybe you, you praised, you did a prayer of praise today with the choir. Just fun. Praise the Lord. Such a fun song that just lifts your spirits and not by might nor by power. We're just praising God for who he is. Maybe you have practiced prayers of confession here at the altar, confessing your sin before receiving the communion, the body and the blood of Jesus. Maybe you have knelt here at the altar with prayers of, prayers of, um, what am I forgetting? Thanksgiving, thank you. Prayers of thanksgiving, saying, God, thank you for what you've done in my life. And in this series, we're talking about intercession, which is pouring out, begging God on behalf of someone else who needs something. It's, it's not a very popular kind of prayer. It's harder to do. It's maybe easy to do once. I mean, we can maybe feel emotionally moved and we'll pray for somebody one time. But when it comes to laboring in prayer, begging God on behalf of somebody, that's just plain old work. A woman shared in the first service today, I have been praying for my adult children to turn to God. And they asked her at one point, how long have you been praying? She said, oh, oh, I don't even know. Decades. And there is something about the work of intercessory prayer. It's not popular. It's not all fun. It's just hard. It is a laboring with God. And we've talked about ways that God works in us and God works through us and how he uses intercessory prayer in lots of ways. But today I want to capitalize on this idea of it's an unpopular kind of prayer. And I want to talk about three unpopular ways to do intercessory prayer. Okay, so it's already a topic that isn't very fun. And we're going to dig into three specific areas of especially unpopular ways to, to do this intercessory prayer. All right, are you excited about today? I mean, I've, I'm making big promises of you're not going to really enjoy any of this. But I do think that there is something beautiful that God is calling us into, and I think we need to go deeper. So we're going to lean into this because we are bold and courageous, because we are people who want to give our whole lives completely to Christ, because we're the kind of people who want to be sold out to him. Because we are the kind of people who are we're trying to build strength. We're trying to build muscle. We're, we're trying to build endurance in prayer. And we're doing this because we are not afraid to push ourselves to grow. Amen? And we are doing this because we have God-given authority and a calling from God himself to pray with him for things to be done in this world. And so we're going to lean in to these three different types of intercessory prayer. I'll be talking about three brief examples of these kinds. Here's the first one. The first unpopular prayer, number one, is prayer for the church. Prayer for the church. All right, I'm, I'm curious if, if people do pray for the church. And thank you so much a few minutes ago for praying for the leaders going on the leadership retreat. This is, these are our team leaders and our residents. We're, we're going away for a strategy retreat and we'll be gone tonight through uh, Tuesday and would really welcome your prayers as we, we do the hard work. About half of our team are, are volunteers or half volunteers and um, people are giving up days off of work to be part of this and they labor regularly to serve 
but I uh, would really welcome your prayers for that. But I think there are lots of reasons why we don't often pray for the church. I think the first one is we often just don't think about it. Maybe we'll pray for certain ministries, uh, but, but we don't often just pray for the inner workings of the church. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, you've you got to keep praying for us because we need it. We need it bad, and it is your prayers that keep everything afloat here. But I long for us as a church to have more power and partnership in prayer where we recognize that it is as we are united in prayer, God shifts heaven and earth in response to our prayers. God, as we talked about two weeks ago, there are some things that God in his sovereignty chooses not to do unless we pray. We gave example after example in the scriptures of there are certain, where God told his people, pray about this, then they prayed, and then God moved. And God in his sovereign wisdom often works that way. He chooses to work through people. I long for us to burn with a deeper maturity in prayer. We are a church that's made up of people of all different kinds of spiritual backgrounds. But a lot of people here haven't had decades and decades and decades of following Jesus. And it is time for us to grow up, grow deep, and grow wide. I long for us to be a burning, fueled up boiler room of prayer that powers the move of God in our church and spills out the doors onto the street. So I think sometimes we don't pray for the church just because we maybe don't, don't think about it. Second, I think another reason why we don't often pray for the church, and by the church I mean both city life and the broader church in general, I think it's common today, it's much more popular today to criticize the church than to stand with it in prayer. There's this tendency of us to put ourselves outside and say, well, I'm looking at you, the church, forgetting that if you're a believer, you're considered the church, and to separate ourselves from that. And and people think, oh, I'm going to be righteous by standing apart from the church and criticizing it from the outside. But that's not the picture that Jesus paints of what a relationship should be to the church and to praying for the church. The first passage I want to look at today comes from John chapter 17, and in this chapter, Jesus is praying his last final prayers before he is getting ready to go and be crucified on the cross. It is, it is coming. He is literally hours away from his life ending, and he is spending a large portion of this time in prayer. And he's specifically spending a large portion of this time in prayer about us, about believe, his believers, about his followers, about the church. Jesus, when he could have been praying about anything, when his mind could have been completely consumed and completely self-centered and self-focused on what he is about to experience because he knew what was coming, he could have been focused in completely on his experience, but instead, he demonstrates for us a prayer for the church. I'll just take a few verses from that to give you a taste of this. John chapter 17, verse 14. Jesus says, Father, I have given them your word And the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Let me say that again. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Say, sanctify sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Say, sent them into the world. So here are a few things. Let me pause here so far. Number one, Jesus says, here's what we should be praying for the church. Number one, pray for protection from the evil one. In this John 17, Jesus repeatedly is praying for the protection of his followers. And he even specifically says to the Father, I have protected them so far. I pray for their ongoing protection. Why does Jesus pray for the protection of his followers? It's because he knows that they are at risk of attack. He knows that his followers are vulnerable to the attack of the enemy and that prayers for protection should be prayed. Prayers for protection for the church is something that we are invited to do. Number two, he also prays for perseverance. He says, my prayer isn't, Father, that you take them out of the world and just let them escape. He says, my prayer is that you'll protect them through it. This prayer for perseverance, to stick with it, to be faithful to him, even in the midst of adversity. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. We have just been through uh, this post-COVID, the the society shifting things that all happened. Our whole society shifted in the last few years. Massive exodus of people from church. There's the, the de-churched, unchurched population has expanded exponentially in the last few years. Let's pray for perseverance, that people would persevere in faith. Then he says in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Jesus prays for the sanctification of the church. So here we've got Jesus He's God in the flesh. He's come to live in humanity, and Jesus is praying for our sanctification. Now, if anybody has now fully experienced how unsanctified humans are, it is Jesus who is God come to earth. And he's like, oh yeah, they've got a long way to go before they are sanctified. But he prays for sanctification. He prays for purification, for purity, for cleansing, for being made new. And he doesn't just say, hey, clean them up a little bit, Father. He says, let's pray for the purification of the church. You see, Jesus has this in mind when he wants us to pray. He says, let's pray for something big. Let's pray for the holiness, the godliness of of you and of you. He wants your holiness. He wants your purity. He wants your godliness. He wants that for us. And then he says, as you've sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He prays for sending. He prays for our sending that we won't just stay in safe little churches, but that we will be sent out. We, we gather here, and then we go to churches. And if it, whoever's ringing, go ahead and help yourself. And go ahead and t- thank you so much for taking care of that. That helps all of us. Um, But he sends us out, not just keeping us here in the church, but to move out past these doors and to be sent into the world. Jesus is praying that you will feel your sentness. And he wants us to pray for the church to be sent. All right? Following all this, he continues his prayer in John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me. Say, those who will believe in me. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Say complete unity. To let the world know, say, let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So he says, number five, we need to pray for the future generations of Christians. Pray for those who will believe. Have we prayed for our children recently to follow Jesus? Have we prayed for 50 years from now to follow, that people will follow Jesus and that people in this church will follow him faithfully? Jesus here in John 17, he's not just praying for his disciples. That's what he's saying. I'm not just praying for my disciples. I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message. That means us. So he says, pray for the future generations of the church. Number six, he wants us to pray for unity. Jesus wants unity. He wants unity with each other. He wants us to experience unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants your unity with him. Jesus longs for the unity of the church. Now, keep in mind, Jesus spent the last three years with his disciples, and he has a really good idea of what dysfunctional relationships look like. And yet, despite this, Jesus says, but I've got a picture. I've got a vision. I know what can happen. He knows the reality of churches made up of of people like you and me and especially you, right? Because we're all kind of messed up people. And yet Jesus says, I pray for their unity. I pray for their oneness. Let's pray for their unity. Seventh, he says, pray for their witness. He's praying that you will be sent. He's praying that you will witness so that the whole world will know what Jesus has done. This is how we pray for the church. Now, Jesus instituted the church. The church is his idea. He came up with this idea. He said to the apostle Peter, Peter, your name means rock, and on you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. He says, my church is going to be on the offensive. My church is the kingdom of God advancing forcefully. And he said, hell will not prevail against it. Some of you are walking through some hell on earth right now. Some of you are walking through unimaginable pain and unimaginable suffering. There are bits of hell that seem to be prevailing in various parts of the world right now. But Jesus says, it will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail. We are reminded through this that there is a spiritual component to our spiritual community that we call the church. We are not just a a social gathering. We are a spiritual gathering, and the Holy Spirit of God is with us as we gather. And so the resistance that we're dealing with isn't always what we can see in this realm. Ephesians 6, 12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The enemy would like nothing better than to focus on disunity and disruption. Your disunity from God, your disunity with each other. The enemy would love to stop your witness from the church. The enemy would love to prevent future generations from coming to faith. The enemy would love to stifle evangelism. 
The enemy would love to make you complacent about holiness and say, oh, I can't be holy, I'm just human, so that isn't for me. God can't do that sort of thing in me. And the enemy would love to convince us that we can hold on to sin and be a faithful follower of Jesus at the same time. Who's praying for the church? Who's praying for the church? Outside the church isn't going to pray for the church. The church needs to pray for the church. And Jesus calls us in this rather unpopular thing to pray for his church just as he prayed for the church. Okay, so we're calling this boot camp, right? Boot camp means, should, should have been a clue to you that you're going to have to do something you might not like <laughs> or do something that's hard. This isn't the kind of sermon where we want you to just come and listen and go away having listened. We want you to do things. And so in this moment, we're going to do a boot camp exercise. And I'll be the drill sergeant here. I'm going to ask you to simply close your eyes right now and pray for the church. Just take moments of silence. Close your eyes and spend a few moments praying for for the church, for city life, for the church at large. Ask the Lord to help you pray if you aren't sure how. Just take a few moments of silence right now. And Lord Jesus, we pray for this church in this moment. I pray that you will make us witnesses. I pray that you'll take us deeper in holiness. Purify us, God. Reveal sin. In your kindness, draw us to confession. Deepen us for your kingdom. Lord, we pray for next generations, and we pray that 50 years from now, city life will be a vibrant legacy of past and a vibrant vision for future, manifesting your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. That's unpopular prayer number one. Unpopular prayer number two gets better. Prayer for your enemies. (laughs) So an enemy is someone who doesn't like you. This isn't about you not liking someone. It's an enemy to you is somebody who doesn't like you. It's somebody who hates you. An enemy is someone who mistreats you, someone who wants harm to happen to you. And I would suggest to you that if you are living a bold Christian life, you're trying to make a difference for God, chances are the devil is going to come after you, often in the form of giving you enemies. I've had my share of enemies. I I think I didn't realize it more until my adult life. But uh, there are some enemies that are easy to talk about. Like, an easy to talk about one is, for a lot of years we had, uh, our our next-door neighbor was addicted to crack, and they weren't our favorite neighbors. Like, 
there were issues, there were some conflicts, loud, lots of things. And so we created a little resistance to that. And people there ended up threatening my husband with harm, like a real dangerous threat. Enemies, right? Enemies to goodness that was trying to happen, enemies to the well-being of the neighborhood. That's easy to talk about that kind of enemy because everybody knows crack is bad. Even people who are doing crack right now would say, yeah, crack is bad. And, and uh, it's easy to identify that as an enemy. Some of you are saying amen. It's all good. Say amen to that. It's good. But there are harder enemies to talk about. I have had Christians, supposedly brothers and sisters, who have gossiped about me unfairly, who have unfairly maligned my character, who have intentionally sought to disrupt the ministry of the church on purpose. This is not to say that I'm perfect. That's not to say that I am above reproach. I am full of flaws, and if you spend more time getting to know me, you will see them more closely. But I'm talking about undeserved attack that is fueled by the enemy and specifically works in opposition to the bigger picture of what God's trying to do. If you look at the epistles in the Bible, those are the pastoral letters where Paul and John and Peter are writing letters to churches that they were doing ministry in, and they're all freaking out about all of the terrible stuff that's going on in those churches. I mean, those epistles never made sense to me until I was a pastor. And then I was like, oh yeah, they're just talking about like what a mess everybody is and how they need to get their act together. And uh, yeah, now I read them and like, oh, amen, amen, this is great. But in those letters, it's all about, hey, straighten up here. Or no, you're saying these things about me and that's not true. Paul says this over and over in Corinthians. He's like, you're saying these ex- Th- number of things about me and they're not true and let me defend myself and, and, and all of these sorts of dynamics. And it's likely that if you're trying to live for Christ, you're going to experience some kind of resistance to it. The enemy will come after you in some way, whether it's temptation, whether it's other people tempting you, whether it's through conflicts that just don't make any sense. Enemies are a part of what happens when you are living in the kingdom of God that is antithetical to the kingdom of this world. When Jesus is praying, I pray for them because they don't belong here, they belong with me, they're not of this world either, he's saying, you don't fit in this world anymore. And what that means is your enemies are going to change. You used to think the world was your friend, now the world's your enemy, and things have, have all shifted around at this point. Jesus shows us that the way of following him will involve resistance and enemies. I recognize the unpopularity of this idea. And I recognize that in most of American Christianity today, it seems like we want to just focus on the praise and enthusiasm and the thanksgivings without also recognizing the reality of we do not fit in this world. We are minorities in the kingdom of this world. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and so we don't totally fit here. You may have already had someone come to mind who, as I've been talking about this, someone who doesn't like you, someone who hates you, someone who wants to do your harm. Maybe you've had someone come to mind. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, that's okay. Enjoy that. Well, alas. But maybe you've had someone come to mind. So how do we respond when these enemies do emerge? When they come and they seek to do us harm? Well, if they gossip about me, I'll gossip back. 
it's human nature to do that. They lie about me, I could say some things about them. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them back. They made me look bad, I can make them look bad, easy. It's, it's easy to think in those terms. But Jesus gets in the way with his Christ-like thing that he calls us to. So see what he says in Luke chapter 6. He says, but I tell you who hear me. Will you read the next part out loud? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. If somebody hates you, do good things. If someone curses you, bless them. Oh, and if they're mistreating you, pray for them. In Matthew 5.44, he says, in a different place, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in Matthew 5.44, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus who became human, knows how bad people can be. He knows how awful we can be. He knows the depth of meanness and bullying, the depth of lies and deceit that can be part of human relationships. He knows this. He's experienced humanity firsthand. But Jesus is our example of what holy humanity looks like, and so this is what we are called to. Jesus himself is wronged a lot. Jesus is bullied. Jesus is mocked. Jesus is publicly ostracized. Jesus is publicly called out. Jesus' own family at one point was ashamed of him, publicly ashamed of him, and tried to make him stop doing his ministry, his own family. His friends had a knack for deserting him at the worst possible moments. The people who should have understood who he was, the people who were trained in the, in the law, people who were the teachers of the people, they were the ones who should have recognized the prophecies about who Jesus was, the very specific ones who should have recognized it, but they were the ones who actually murdered him. Jesus had enemies. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, when he says, pray for those who persecute you, pray for those who despitefully use you, pray for those who wrong you, he's talking about something that he knows something about. He knows what he's talking about. It's not just this God in heaven who says, hey, we'll just love everybody. He's like, no, I've lived it. I've been there. I get it. And you've got to pray for your enemies. So when Jesus is on the cross, hanging in agony, dying a slow death, he could have prayed about anything. He could have prayed literally about anything in that moment. But as he's there on the cross, looking at the sea of people in front of him, his prayer Looking at the sea of enemies in front of him, his prayer is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
In this moment, Jesus is not praying for himself. Deliver me. Make it end. He is praying for his enemies. Church, Jesus calls us to follow him. And when he says that we are to take up our cross and follow him, part of that means acknowledging if there are enemies in our lives and praying for them. Let's do another boot camp exercise. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Ask the Lord if there is a person who is functioning as an enemy in your life. It's okay if there's not, but just ask the Lord, is, is there someone who's functioning as an enemy in my life that you want me to pray for? And if there is someone, ask him what he wants you to do next with this situation. Lord God, we, we know and are maybe a little afraid that there's more in the Bible about forgiving enemies, but in this moment we, we set that aside. And we, we just focus specifically on this command you've given us to pray for our enemies. We just, we just begin with that step. We pray for those who have hurt us. We pray for those who have been malicious. We pray for that person who willed ill will toward us. We cannot deal with this. We offer this person to you. I offer this, this person to you and ask, Lord God, that you would hear this prayer. Guide our prayers, God. And we commit this enemy into your keeping. Do in my heart what you want to do next. Amen. the unpopular prayer of praying for the church, the unpopular prayer of praying for our enemies, and then the third one, the unpopular prayer of praying for the unsaved. And I call this one unpopular because I think so often there is a sense of, of resistance in our American Christian culture today to say, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to push anybody into becoming a Christian. I don't want to be pushy. When we have experienced the life-changing gospel of Jesus and he's changed everything about our lives, how selfish is it of us to keep it to ourselves and think it's not for everyone? Jesus wants our minds to be blown with how he is for everyone and how he is seeking all people. So this prayer for the unsaved. I love this passage in Matthew chapter 9. I, I think it's a really beautiful picture. Matthew 9.35. Jesus traveled through all the cities and villages of that area this is during his ministry, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And wherever he went, he healed people of every sort of disease and illness. He felt great pity 
for the crowds that came because their problems were so great and they didn't know where to go for help. They were like sheep without a shepherd. I love this picture. Jesus sees the tremendous needs. He feels, he feels the weight of all the people who don't know him, all the people who have not found saving faith through God. So many lost, so many people. He said, verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is so great, but the workers are so few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send out more workers for his fields. In this picture, this agricultural picture, the harvest represents so many people who are ready and wanting to put their faith in Jesus. They're willing even to believe in Jesus. They're desperate even to hear the gospel. They are ready. They're ready to hear the good news. And the Bible gives us this picture of there are lots of people out in the world who are ready and all they want is to receive what we have. And he says the harvest is plentiful, but there aren't enough workers. There aren't enough people to go out to reap the harvest, to go out and tell people the good news of Jesus. He says the workers are few. And then he says pray that the Lord of the harvest will send more workers into his fields. So Jesus says lots of people need me, lots of people want me. Pray that people will be sent. Pray that people will go. Pray that God will work and that in this beautiful harmony clashing of God and humans coming together because it's the way that God loves to do work in this world, that God, through people in the power of his Holy Spirit, will go out and will reap this harvest. God's plan all along is to do the work of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through humans. As we talked about two weeks ago, from the very beginning of creation, when God designed man and woman and he gave them authority to rule, he delegated his authority to them to rule over the earth. Humans are given authority over the earth and God in his sovereignty chooses to work in this world through people. He chooses to use the disciples at Pentecost to bring the message of the Holy Spirit. He chooses to work through people, and he he stays consistent in his desire to work through people by sending his son Jesus as a human to people. God's desire, his plan A, his purpose in all of this, in his divine wisdom, is to use you to accomplish his kingdom work. And so we have this picture here of he's saying, pray that the Lord will send workers into the harvest, and pray that the workers will hear the prompting of God, and will go in obedience. It's amazing. Matthew 28, 18, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has commissioned you. If you are a believer, you are part of this. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been sent by Jesus You have been sent to pray for the lost. It's not somebody else's job in this room. You are included in that commissioning of Jesus. 
There's a man by the name of John Hyde. He was a missionary to India in the early 1900s, and he became known by the name Praying Hyde because of his prayers. In his first few years of ministry, he saw very little fruit. People were not putting their faith in Jesus. People were not converting to trust Jesus as the one true Lord and Savior. And he just, he's like, this can't be. Things had to change. So he began to pray very intensely. His frequent prayer that he's famous for is he said, Lord, give me souls or I die. This is intercession. This is begging at the throne of God. Lord, give me souls or I die. In 1899, he began to spend whole nights in prayer to God. Five years later, in 1904, he formed the Punjab Prayer Union. And anyone who was part of this, uh, they set aside half an hour every day to pray for spiritual awakening. Four years later, in 1908, he came before the prayer conference and he said, this is my dream, that there, we will have one conversion every single day, 365 days of the year, every single day. We want to have someone who's, who's new to the faith. And a year later, over 400 people had become Christians. He, he became known as praying Hyde for his passionate prayers to reach the lost. Lord, give me souls or I die. Another example is Dwight Moody, late 19th century traveling preacher, one of the most influential evangelists in the U.S., and his entire evangelistic strategy was prayer. Moody famously carried a list, of, a piece of paper in his pocket, and on this piece of paper there were 100 names, and these were 100 names of 100 unsaved friends who had no relationship with Jesus, 100 people he knew who didn't have a relationship with Christ. And so Moody just quietly prayed through that list. Every day he prayed through that list. It was a labor of love. It was secret, hidden prayer on their behalf. And he begged God, he begged God to reveal himself to each of them in a way they could understand and receive. By the time he died, do you know how many people on that list had put their faith in Jesus? 96. 96 out of that 100. I'd say 96% is a good rate. That's an A. 96 people. But it gets better. Because at his funeral, his remaining four friends were each in attendance, and those four friends were independently so moved at the memorial service that they also all came to faith at his funeral. There's something about praying for the lost that matters and is powerful. I don't understand the physics of how the kingdom of God works. I don't understand how the economy of God's kingdom works. All I know is that Jesus says to pray, and when we do, things change. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, and that means if they're going to go to hell, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. And Jesus sums it all up in Luke 19.10 when he describes himself and he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. When we pray 
for the unsaved, we are praying with the heart of Jesus. We are praying for what God also deeply desires. We're praying for the thing that God is working toward. Boot camp exercise, bow your heads, please. You might know lots of unsaved people, but in this moment, just ask the Lord to bring to mind a name of of an unsaved person. Just focus on one for, for this moment. And just take a few moments and implore God to draw that person to himself. Implore God for that person's soul. Lord Jesus, we pray for those who might even be in this room who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. We pray that you will bless them in this journey and that in your kindness you will draw them to yourself. Lord, we pray against the barriers that keep people from receiving you. We pray for those who are wayward, for those who are backsliding, We pray for those who know better. We pray for those who've never heard. We pray for those who don't understand. And Lord, you know all these names. You you see these names floating up to heaven in this moment. And we offer these names up to you, begging you, God, make yourself known. Make yourself known. Soften their hearts to you, God. Amen. As we go into our boot camp exercise, there, there's a verse in, in uh, Ephesians 6.18 that says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. All kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the saints. I have here uh, three, three different intercession tickets. These are reminders. We, we, we've, we did accountability last week, and you were invited to, to do some form of accountability. Many of you signed up to receive text messages from the church twice a day to prompt you to pray for how, how God was directing you to pray. Uh, I know personally that was a, a very great experience for me and helped keep me on track. We're, we're not going to do that this week. We're doing something different. These yellow tickets are about praying for the lost. The blue are about prayers for an enemy. And the green are about prayers for the church. And this is just a reminder for you to take home with you, to put it, it's on bright paper so you can see it. And I'm going to ask you to take just one of these, just focus on one area, and really lean into interceding for that one particular area this week. 
so when we come up for communion in just a few moments, you also are welcome to come up here and, and take one of these as a reminder. It's on brightly colored paper so that you can visually see it and it will help prompt you to pray this week. And then next week when we do our reporting, I want to hear from you on what God's doing, what you're learning, what you're noticing, if it's how it's hard, how it's beautiful, and come back and report for duty and what's next. Jesus is the great intercessor. He is always praying for you as you are interceding for others. He's helping you to pray. The Spirit helps us to pray in our weakness. Jesus came and sacrificed his own body on this cross, his broken body. His body broken, his blood poured out. And he prayed all the way through it, from in the upper room when he prayed for the church to when he's hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive my enemies, to when he ascends into heaven and says, now it's your turn. You go. You go reach the world. He's inviting you to participate in this hard work of intercessory prayer, the kind of work that will involve, uh, that will require us to be broken and poured out as we are broken in the presence of God and we pour out our hearts before the Lord. Come and participate in the body and the blood of Jesus.